Amen. So glad to have you with us. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope. And today we're going to be in the New Testament letter called 1 John. So the Gospel of John and then 1 John. So you go to the end of the Bible and reverse just a little bit, you'll find it. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, please don't panic. Uh, We'll have them on the screen for you, the words on the screen for you. And we'd love to gift you uh, a copy of the Bible. That would be a great honor for us, so please let us do that for you. As we begin a series on 1 John, we want to submit to the teaching of that book. We want to see what it has to say to us. And as you read it, there's one theme that pounds regularly through that book. And it's the theme of certainty. And if you were somebody John was writing to, or us, like a modern Uh, just normal American person, you're somebody who needs a great deal of certainty. Certainty for us is hard to find and hard to keep. Things change constantly in our lives. Yes, just normal stuff changing all the time, but also we live in a time with rapid change. There's incredible technological development, but also incredible social change. We won't say development, maybe, but change very difficult to be certain of anything. Culturally, we have the idea that to be certain of anything is always a little bit suspect. One of the only things we can be certain of is that we're not really certain about anything. Certainty is scarce. And yet, biblically, it's something that's being offered to us. To live in a place of uncertainty is not something that the biblical authors have for us. They want us to have a degree of certainty, to know. That's increasingly difficult, especially not only do things change all the time, we also live in an age of incredible skepticism, especially about anything supernatural. Now, this was in the 90s, and I'm using this as an example, maybe just more for me, so please just stick with me maybe, but there's a show called Seinfeld in the 90s. One of the main characters, a lady named Elaine, And she's dating a guy, she gets in his car and realizes that all of his radio station presets are Christian radio stations. There's a moment where she gets to like the sixth one and her anxiety gets higher and higher as she types on each of the different ones and she goes, Jesus! And it's kind of silly maybe. And then she's talking to Jerry and Jerry says, okay, well maybe he's too dumb to know how to change the presets. And Elaine says, yes, he is dumb. And then Jerry says, okay, well, maybe he's too lazy to just change the radio stations. And she said, yes, he is lazy. And Jerry responds, so you prefer lazy or dumb to religious? And she said, lazy and dumb, I understand. Now, the joke there is that she doesn't have any concept of why a modern person would be religious would have any kind of certainty about something supernatural. And yet we are making the counter-argument. That was at the time, the number one show, 20-something years ago. Do you think society has continued to trend that way? Yeah, I think even more now. People find it difficult that we would propose a certainty as possible when it comes to things... Religious, supernatural, the big things. I also think that we kind of enjoy the idea that things are now a little bit more fluid. Meaning that the principles that you hold, you hold loosely. 
society. That's what we do. We hold our convictions loosely. If you rewind 10 years, I didn't necessarily have this viewpoint. And if you fast forward 10 years, I'm guessing that I won't still have this viewpoint. That kind of flexibility means that your principles are a little bit squishy. And that has a couple of different things that we can kind of imply from that. If you're If your principles are a little bit squishy, if you're not exactly sure that right is right and wrong is wrong, as some people paint those pictures, then you live in a world that can kind of adjust to you. You live in a world that's a little bit more cushy like a cushion. And that's comfortable. There's an appeal to that. If you live a kind of nice life, then it's okay to have things just be a little squishy around you. The Bible doesn't offer squishy. The Bible offers hard, rigid truth. Something that's much closer to a brick. It's something that's very, very hard and also very dependable. Thinking on those two things, I live in a world with little girls. I would much rather live in my house made of bricks than any of the increasingly impressive pillow forts that my daughters build. Comfortable, pink, fluffy, durable, reliable, no. And yet the scripture gives us certainty. This is how one of the commentators on this book of 1 John, a guy named John Stott, said it. He said there's a widespread distrust of dogmatism. What's that word? Kind of building a system about things you believe to be true. And a preference for agnosticism, which is like, I believe that I don't know when it comes to whether or not God exists. Gnosticism or free thought. Many church members, meaning people who are attenders of church, people who are saying that they believe this to some degree, are, are still products of this culture. Hybrids maybe, but products of this culture. Many church members are also filled with uncertainty and confusion. Against this background, to read the letters of John, is to enter into another world altogether. For its marks, what what characterizes this, this letter are assurance, knowledge, confidence, boldness, boldness. See, I'm confident. I, I, I'm not worried about all this. You're talking about people with faith, not faith, not me, Ben. I have certainty. Does your life have boldness? Well, no. Okay. Then maybe you have... Uh, maybe a little bit more bluster than confidence. There's a fruit to the certainty that Scripture provides, a boldness that comes about. The predominant theme of these letters is Christian certainty. We need First John. We want to read it, and we want to squeeze out of it everything that we can so that we can understand why we are to be certain about these things. And I'd say, I would think, If we become people who are certain, certain of something that makes us humble and makes us loving, we would be unique in the culture, unique to the degree that light or salt is unique. And so let's read along with 1 John. We're just going to read the first four verses, so don't have to read too much here. But 1 John chapter 1 starts this way. John says, that which was from the beginning. Now, every other letter in the New Testament usually starts with an introduction. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the church in Ephesus, grace to you and peace. Hi, I am you, you are, and hello, welcome. If I come to your house, you say hi. 
And if I just walked in and immediately started saying, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have, it would be a little bit odd. There's a dramatic kind of a hit here. But John's doing that on purpose. He's inviting them back into what they have known, what they once believed. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We've seen it, testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Who was John? Who was he writing to? The John that we're talking about here was John the disciple, one of the twelve that spent the whole of Jesus' ministry with him. John the Baptist, but John the Apostle. And he was very, very young, not like 10, but he was like, you know, young, 20s, 30s maybe, when he was with Jesus during Jesus' ministry. But by the time he's writing these letters, he's very old. There's a guy named St. Jerome, who was the one who initially translated the scriptures from Greek and Hebrew into Latin. And the, that was called the Vulgate. The Vulgate was used for um, centuries as kind of the main primary text within the, the Roman Empire. But this guy, Jerome, who was writing in the 400s AD, around the time of Augustine, he was remembering a story that was told about this guy, John, that he was ancient, he was so old, and they would drag him in, they would pick him up, and I don't know if they had wheelchairs or not, but they would pick him up and they would walk him in and sit him down and the whole church would listen to this one who had been with Christ. And he would say, this is my impression of an ancient person, he would say, brothers, little children, which you're going to hear that refrain all throughout this letter as well, he calls these people little children, beloved little ones, little ones that I love, love one another. And then they'd pick him up and take him back out. That was it. That was the whole sermon. That's probably a good model for how sermons should be. But he, he, he was old by the time that he was writing a lot of this stuff, meaning that the church had time, the gospel message had time for people to hear it, think about it, react to it, and then desire to monkey with it. Maybe, maybe adjust it a little bit. I, I like all of this. This is great. But it's a little difficult here. What if we just sort of, and they just start uh, monkeying with it? And those that are watching this monkeying then have to say, is this true or is it not? How can we know that what's been preached to us is true? Well, John's grand evidence is the witnesses. The certainty that we can have where it comes from fact and there's other things, but where it comes from facts, he's grounding on the witnesses. This is what it says in verse 2, the life was made manifest. We've seen it. We testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was the Father, was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. He's saying that the grandeur of the gospel, the eternal message of salvation that God has proclaimed from before time, the eternal has been manifested to us in history. It stepped into a moment with a day. It became historical fact. 
That means that if we want to verify that fact, we have to verify it the same way you would any other historical fact, i.e. by witness testimony. How do you know that Lincoln was shot? Well, the people saw it and they told other people and the letter in the news and it was all a big thing. And they were told people who told people who told people who told people however many generations down and you read it in a history book or maybe you didn't, but that happened. And we believe it. It's a historical fact. There was a series of witnesses who testified to that event and not only do we have this witness testimony, but we also have the effects of that event. Those effects either confirming that this thing happened or maybe disproving the witness testimony that this thing happened. John is saying you can do the exact same thing here. You can have... A a degree, uh, and in fact, a complete certainty based on our eyewitness historical testimony. Now, how do we get that kind of historic testimony? You and I don't know John. He was ancient when this was written, so he's been long dead. You can't meet him and know him and watch his life and decide if he's credible or not. How do we have the same witness. Well, it's been carried down through the ages to us in the New Testament. The New Testament, which had a criteria of, get ready for this one, apostolicity. Yeah. Apostolicity. And the way to remember that is apostle proximity. It was something written by or supervised, the writing was supervised by an apostle. Every book of the New Testament has that credential. This is what they said when they said, who are the apostles? How are we going to replace a missing apostle? Again, I'm not going to assume too much familiarity on your part with the New Testament, but there's a moment towards the end of Jesus' life where the 12 sort of guys that he had with him, one of them, a guy named Judas, betrays Jesus, and then, sort of in the overwhelming guilt, what did I do, what have I done, Jesus was God, ah, he kills himself. Then, After you get past all of the like fact of that, there's a moment in the beginning of the book of Acts where they say, okay, we got to replace him. Now, you and I have difficulty hiring for positions. What do you do to hire for an apostle? What credentials would you need to become an apostle of Christ's everlasting church? Well, apparently just this. Peter says in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 21 and 22... So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. So Jesus' ministry beginning at the moment where uh, he's baptized by John the Baptist, he goes out in the desert tempted, and then he begins his gospel proclamation ministry. Everybody, somebody who's been with us from that moment all the way through Jesus' life and ministry and healing and all the stuff that he did until he dies on the cross, buried, and then is resurrected and ascends. There's a period of time between his resurrection and his ascension where he's teaching those people. He's being viewed by hundreds and hundreds of people and then ascends. And Peter is saying, somebody who's been with us all of that time, one of these must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Do you see that he is saying that the qualification for being apostle is not incredible oratory skill that can draw thousands of people to belief in Christ. 
The qualification was not piles of gold that would help to facilitate ministry, these missionary missions all over the world. It wasn't incredible lucrative connections within the Roman Empire that may somehow gain favor rather than persecution for the church. The only, in this text, qualification for this apostle was that they were a witness to Jesus. It's not about the apostle, it's about what the apostle saw. Christianity is not about the Christian, it's about what the Christian believes or who the Christian knows. And John is saying to us, they have the qualification of having been a witness. And then, of course, they had lives that showed the effects of that belief. They go about preaching, even though it was incredibly difficult and painful, up until the point that they pay the ultimate price of being killed for that self-same belief. Why? 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 Because they actually saw it. Because it actually happened. Now, you may roll your eye at this kind of thing as a foundation for our evidence, for our certainty in Christianity. And, I don't know, lots of people do. But let me counter it by asking you to think about it a little more broadly. A guy named Tim Keller, love him. Pastor that was in Manhattan, he's retired now. He did a Google Talk. You've heard of TED Talks? This is Google Talks. It's a little more insular. It's just for the Google employees, but they put it on YouTube. And you can watch as they bring in tastemakers and thought leaders to give about an hour-long something about a book they've written or a speech that they've done or some big event that they put on. And they help the Google employees just kind of stay in the middle of everything, right? And this guy, Tim Keller, goes and he preaches to these people or speaks to these people about some books that he's written. He did three different Google Talks. He did one on uh, his first book and then another two books. But the one on the first book, he goes through, he gives his whole talk, and then he does a period of Q&A. And a Google employee comes up and starts off really nice, but then he makes this argument. I want you to put yourself into the, the room because I think it's important. It's in a room somewhat like this. And Keller's sitting on the stage. Brilliant man, everybody agrees. Shaved head, he's kind of austere, a little bit older. He's been leading a church in Manhattan for, gener- or for, for decades. And there's thousands and thousands of people that attend this church in the middle of Manhattan. Respected enough that the Google leaders decided to bring this guy in. And then you have a Google employee come up. And I just want you to take a minute and imagine what a Google employee looks like. <laughs> Just use your own stereotypes. Comes down and gets to the mic, the question mic, and he's the last question. And he says, you know, thank you, Dr. Keller, for coming and talking to us. This is a very full room. It's not usually, obviously, you have a lot of pool, blah, 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 blah. He's very nice. And then he says, by the way, you actually need to change your belief because I'm God. The Google employee says that to Dr. Keller. He says, I'm God. And the hell that I've created is much worse than the Christian hell. So you should bow to me. You should believe in me and trust in me. Now, what's he doing? Is he actually like using that as his moment to proclaim his divinity to the world? Or is he making a snarky comment about the kind of thing that Christians use as a foundation for our belief system? B. And Keller responds in a way that I think will help us because there's a part of us, if we're honest, that has a sort of similar objection where we say, well, couldn't anybody just claim this? 
And if they're sneaky enough or if the events kind of conspire well enough, couldn't they get away with it? Well, Keller responds as anybody who's thought about this carefully would and said, okay, well, thank you for your ridiculousness, but if you lived a life that was so compelling that hundreds of people became not only your followers but witnesses to both your death and your resurrection, it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that hundreds of people saw this resurrection, the resurrected Christ walking around eating fish, talking to people, And the compelling message that you had given was so absolutely life-altering for those that heard it that it bounded down through the centuries and across geographic lines for millennia? Well, then you might have a case. This is another way he said it. In the whole history of the world, there's only one person who not only claimed to be God himself, but also got enormous numbers of people to believe it. Only Jesus combines claims of divinity with the most beautiful life of humanity. Isn't that lovely? (coughs) So with these witnesses, we have not only their testimony, but the life that they live because of what happened. And then they have the fellowship, the church that's generated around this testimony, the people that you are actually visiting with today or part of today. Then we want to ask what you should ask. If then we can be certain of whatever these guys were witnessing, what were they witnessing? What is that which was from the beginning? It says there in verse 1, verse, uh, the first part of verse 1, that which was from the beginning. He's describing who and what they were witnessing. It's important, though, to notice what it says there. This Jesus is the same. It's the same Jesus that always was. And it's the same Jesus that is today. You want certainty. There's got to be a degree, when we're talking about certainty, of consistency. And it starts by saying that this Jesus was the same. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 8, and this is so perfect because the writer of Hebrews is making the exact same argument as the writer of 1 John here. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's saying what 1 John's saying. It's saying you have witnesses. These apostles, these initial leaders of the church, and they're named in two or three of the different gospels. You've got Peter and John and James and these guys. It's 12 quantifiable dudes from Palestine. Those apostles and the witness that they then give after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has become for you a foundation. Not them as individuals, but the witness that they have. You could pick anybody and put them through that same experience. But those 12 went through that experience and they came up with this testimony. And this testimony and the word that they spoke to you about God, you're supposed to consider and think about and then finally imitate. And you're saying to yourself, gee, I wish I wouldn't come on these Sundays where all he's doing is trying to get non-believers to become Christians. You need this Christian. Church is full. Church is full of people who agree, but they don't imitate. There are so many people in the church more broadly, but let's not pretend like it's not also Hope Church, 
who are more than happy to do the minimum. (laughs) Whatever it is. I'm not saying just service to Hope Church. The minimum when it comes to their relationship with God. God. Creator of all things. Sustainer of matter itself. God. And they walk into that relationship and say, Oh, I don't mean to be rude. But what's the least possible amount I can get away with? Because I want to do 5% less than that. Because they're not certain. I think there's some degree that they're they're just not certain. And there's a reason that they're not certain. We live in a world where things have been twisted. Things have been made difficult to see. Our hearts want to twist them up, but they've also been made twisted. It said in Acts 20, 30, that from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. John with Jesus versus John writing this letter. There's been a lot of time and people have started to change things. We experience that same thing today. Writers who are able to study First John are much more smart and have a much deeper understanding of both the New Testament and the world in which the New Testament was written have been able to sort of put together an, an understanding, a list, a, a description of what these teachers were like and what they believed just by trying to reverse engineer the medicine. This happens all the time in history. When you don't have every book you might possibly want, you sometimes have to take the books that are written against the thing you're trying to study in order to get to what you're trying to study. It happened historically with a thing called Manichaeism. Very interesting. All we know about it is from people like Augustine who are writing against it. Same thing here. We have 1 John who's writing against these guys that are messing with the church. And we don't really know a lot about what they were saying, but we do know the medicine that John was giving for this disease. I think this is really helpful. Think about this for a second. F.F. F. Bruce, respected, uh, think dead, British uh, New Testament scholar, said this, talking about these guys. He said, these men and others before them attached special importance to the testimony of a man like John. When teachers who came along presenting a new brand of doctrine with the claim that it was the original and authentic doctrine of Christ. They've spent a lot of time with John and they've just been overwhelmed by it. They've seen in his life consistency and beauty. They've seen... A flush presentation between what he says he believes and the way that his life imitates it. And then somebody else comes along and they say to them, here's a new brand with the claim that it, this new thing is original and authentic. This is what you should believe about Jesus. And they may say, perhaps secretly, that these things were committed to them by, uh, so that they were to be the chosen vessels and transmitted orally by them until the time ripe for a wider publicity. The idea being there's a secret knowledge that Jesus gave to a couple of people. And I just happen to be one of those people. So do what I say and do it how I say it. This is a, another sentence, and please forgive me, I don't like using like gigantic long sentences like this, but it's really helpful. F.F. Bruce again. Moreover, new brand of doctrine would probably be so completely in accord, so completely flush with the prevailing climate of opinion that in the eyes of many thinking people, this new teaching was definitely the way in which the gospel was to be restated for their day, if it was to have any chance of being accepted and indeed surviving. Think about that. Think about that. Have you ever heard? Have you ever been tempted to find a version of Christianity that was maybe just a little easier to live with? It's happening all the time. People are all the time saying, well, I know what you thought it was, but it's actually this and this. Wow, this is going to sell well. 
It's squishy. They're trying to change it how they want it to be changed. And, and John is coming in and saying, shh, 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 calm down. Remember. Remember what we've seen, what we've heard, what we touched. Remember the one that we know. So we've seen, that was from the beginning, which we have see, heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Remember him. And don't follow this teaching because Christianity is not about following a kind of teaching. It's about following a person. What are they witnesses to? They're not witnesses to exact, long, lengthy, doctrinal instruction from Jesus, though that is part of the Gospels. What they are primarily witnesses to is the way that Jesus loves and interacts with people. On all the seats in here, we got our Gospel vs. Religion card. If you've not read it before, take it home and read it and think about it carefully. But another way to state that is religion versus relationship. Here's what I mean by that. Most religion is about giving you a content of teaching which you either accept or fail to accept. Christianity is about introducing you to a living, resurrected, living person whom you either love, know, and accept or reject. One pastor said it this way, what if God hasn't given us a watertight argument, but rather a watertight person? I think he has given us not only a, but several watertight arguments. You can get around them with like matrixy type stuff. Well, but what if we're all brains in jars, bro? Yeah, okay, maybe. <laughs> I think he's given us some great arguments. But also better, he's given us this person. Now what are you going to do with it? When I was in college, I went belaying, one, or not belaying, uh, repelling one time. It was the first time I'd ever been repelling. And you people, mountain people, have all you know, grown up repelling or whatever. It was my first time, and I was in college, so I was hefty. And I was watching as person after person are going, and I want to be at the end of the line because, again, if the ropes are going to break, you know, they're going to break for me. And so I want to see other people go down. And you watch, and it's kind of a study in these different people's characters. You watch how they take just a rope. And it's got a harness or whatever, but it's just a rope. And they get to the edge of a cliff and look down the cliff. And then they turn around, they put their feet on the edge, and they start to do the little technique, whatever the technique is, to release. And they slowly start to go back. And they just go right off the edge. How do they do that? Not technique-wise. I'm saying, how do they have the decision? How do they make the decision to actually, like, this is going to work, and I'm going to do it. And then they just... Go. How do they do that? How do they gain that certainty that the rope is going to hold them? Well, they watched other people do it. They know that ropes exist and that people have done this. They've seen this. They've seen it work. They've looked at other individuals. And those other individuals don't have to be great at repelling. In fact, it's actually better if they're not. You've got to be a pro at it. I don't know that I want to do it. If some idiot can do it, well, then maybe I can too, right? It's actually better if it's the rope, not the person that you're having faith in. And person after person, they slowly start to go down. And you got the belayer at the bottom who's like helping them down, and they slowly work their way down. And you watch, and some people, they do it really slowly. Fear and trembling. A lot of just, uh, 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 and they're going to do it, and then they stop. And everybody's like, come on, man. You know, we got other people. And they slowly, but maybe they eventually start to go down, and you feel bad. 
Maybe a little bit of pee is going to land on that belay guy at some point. But they slowly trusted. And it was a lot of doubt and it was a lot of angst. But the net result of the decision was they trusted the rope. They did it. And then there's other people. Have you ever heard of Aussie style? Aussie style rappelling is where you flip the rope around and instead of going down backwards where you don't see the bottom, you go down forward. So you're literally just running down the cliff. And they call it Aussie style because, I don't know, Australians are like fun and crazy and surfing and punching sharks or whatever they do. And so they like just, let's go front ways. Woo! And they go run down. And some people, they want to trust the slow sort of, and other people are Aussie style, just running down. But it all comes back to your certainty in the rope. Now, hopefully you see the point of this illustration. Jesus is for you what you must trust to make it through the moment of death and judgment. He's the only thing that you're going to be able to hold on to as you go over that cliff. Will you? If you will or if you won't is a question of your certainty. Can you come to even enough of a certainty, not to run down Aussie style, but just to slowly kind of let yourself over that cliff? That's what we have described to us as faith in Scripture. Is that what you have? Now, Christian. As you start to see your Savior be faithful time and again, what do you expect to take place? Oftentimes in the church, we see people who've been around for a long time, and yet, whenever you can get them to actually do it, they're still peeing on the belay guy. (laughs) When we're hoping that there will be a degree of growth to the point that you're running down Aussie style, that God can trust you to do this and do it well. I hope you can see now why we need to study First John. To come back time and again and just slowly start to work on, to grow in this concept of, can I, can I trust Him? Lord God and Heavenly Father, as we just spend time in this letter and don't even get to everything we need to about the witnesses that we can trust and the certainty that You give, Lord, as we come to see the one who won't change, what we're believing in, we're believing in this eternal life. Lord, as we see the reason for it, it says in these verses that you are giving us through this fellowship, fellowship with these other believers, but also fellowship with Jesus and God, Lord, that that's what we're coming to. Lord, that you are giving us joy. You're writing these things that we might have joy. I just, I ask, Father, that you would seed all of our minds with the the appeal so that we will more reasonably ask the question of what if. Is this true? Could it be true? Are these witnesses reliable? Lord, if you would give us some kind of objectivity as we go into that question, I know, Lord, that we would come to a place of belief. And so I just ask for you to do that, for you to draw people to yourself and for you to draw the believers to yourself so that we become imitators rather than just those that just say, I speak the name. We love you, sir. Pray these things in your son's holy name.